Good morning, everybody. It's always so good to be with you. Special welcome to those of, you with those of you who are with us for the first time. My name is Jason. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, I would love to be able to do that. If you've got a minute right after the service, I'll be hanging out right here uh, in the front. Before we get into our text this morning, I want to tell you about the day that I had on Friday. It started when Jill and I attended the Old Testament class that we hosted here on campus at 10 a.m., 10 a.m. each Friday. It uh, is taught by uh, David Hotelling, and he was a pastor for 44 years. And I got to tell you, the class was so incredibly rich. Not only was the content great, but just the atmosphere. It was hosted by our Cornerstone group, our 55 plus, and it was just such a sweet time together. And then we were back at church that afternoon to drop off our 17-year-old daughter as she joined about 150 of our students there off uh, at winter camp. Make sure you're praying for them. And then we were back here Friday night at 6 o'clock for Celebrate Recovery. And uh, we had an amazing time. We, they, we, we actually had blackened salmon and teriyaki chicken. The food was donated, but it was prepared by our mobile kitchen. And then Jill and I joined the, uh, a couple of the small groups, and it was just such an incredible time of sharing. Then we came together for worship afterwards, and at the end of the day, Jill and I looked at each other, and we were like, wow, what a dream. <laughs> you know, what an amazing day. And it hit us just how powerful it is to participate in the life of the church. We have so many amazing ministries that God has blessed us with. And I just want to encourage you. I can't encourage you strongly enough to find at least one and get involved. It's like a salve to your soul. It just it feeds you in such a unique way. And with all of these ministries come all of these different opportunities. So many people think that their involvement or participation at, at Illuminate is really confined to one hour on a Sunday morning. And that is actually just a very, very small piece of it. If you're not involved in community, Again, please, please make that effort. You take one small step and you will see what's reciprocated in kind. We have rooted groups that are starting up uh, as well. So there's so many different ways for you to get involved. So having said that, uh, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study of Genesis. We gave a big overview of the book. Today we're going to drill down a little bit closer. We're going to study the first 19 verses together. And we began by saying that the book of Genesis, as the title explains is all about beginnings. Most importantly, it describes the beginning of God's relationship with humans, starting with Adam and Eve. But the book also contains an introduction by God himself. And what an amazing introduction it is. Let's say you're at a party and you're asked to introduce yourself. Say something about yourself. Tell us who you are. Chances are you're going to obviously mention your name, and if you're married and you have kids, you might talk about them or your career or maybe where you went to school. But when God introduces himself, he does so in a way that is absolutely unique to him. The very opening line of the Bible, in the beginning, that's the beginning of human history as we know it, God, and the Hebrew word is Elohim, and you see this word, you see this name for God 35 times in chapter 1. So over and over it catches the, the reader's eye. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. 
In other words, God says, here's my introduction to you. Here's the first thing I want to say about who I am. Look around you. Do you see all of this? Look at creation. Look at nature. See the design. See the order. See the purposefulness. Understand that I did all of that. Design and order imply a designer. The more complex or complicated, the more sophisticated the design, the more intelligent the designer. God says, look around you. I did all of this. This is so good, this introduction. Because it also answers the most essential question that any human could ever ask. And you have asked it. And the question is this. Where did all of this come from? More specifically, where did I come from? (laughs) Where did human life come from? It's the uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre who asked the fundamental question in all of philosophy when he said, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, God answers that in the opening line and he tells us that you're not here by chance. Your existence is not a matter of randomness, but it is by specific and purposeful design. God introduces himself as the creator. It's kind of like you get this picture of God sitting at the potter's wheel. In the opening lines, he's got all of the raw material in front of him. He's got like this lump of clay. And then as the narrative begins to unfold, and it's a very carefully crafted narrative, as you'll see, God just begins forming the most beautiful things, the scope of which is is just, it's it's almost unfathomable to the human mind. Um, When the ancients wanted to describe a large number of something, the biggest number they had was essentially in the tens of thousands. The concept of millions or billions of trillions to the ancient mind was so foreign. They couldn't wrap their mind. They couldn't even, they didn't use language like that. Instead, they used tens of thousands. And so in in order to compare large numbers of something, they would use something from nature. Now, of course, back then, the night sky was so dark when the sun set, and especially if there wasn't a full moon, you look up at the sky and you see thousands and thousands and thousands. They thought they could number the stars and they were roughly in the 10,000s. It's like every square inch of the night sky was dotted. It's hard for us because when's the last time you got away from the city lights and you looked up and you just saw the night sky? And so that was their frame of reference. Now understand that they had no clue just how massive the universe is. God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the word heavens literally means, the skies and the space beyond the skies. So let me just use one simple example to try to put this in perspective. Consider this. As of 2021, and these are NASA's estimates, there are roughly 200 billion, 200 billion galaxies in the observable 
universe. There are some British astronomers that put the number at two trillion, two trillion. We'll go low, we'll, say, we'll use NASA's most recent numbers, 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So a typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. It's very hard to determine from our viewpoint on Earth, but it's estimated that our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, contains 100 billion stars. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is just one star on one arm of the pinwheel. It would take 250 million years for the pinwheel to make one full rotation. But this is only our galaxy. There are many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals, spherical clusters, and flat pancakes. The average distance between one galaxy and another is about 20 million trillion miles. I don't even know how to write that. 20 million trillion miles? I say that. It's got to be massive. I don't even know what that means. But I know it's big. Our closest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, right? You've heard of that. It would take you 2.5 million light years traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles an hour, per second, sorry, per second, for 2.5 million years just to travel from the Milky Way galaxy to the closest galaxy to us, Andromeda. Okay? And we're told that the universe is actually expanding. <laughs> you, can't, you can hardly wrap your mind around the scope of the universe. And at the same time, we have to talk about something like the atom, which is made up of like smaller particles, which end up forming the basic building blocks of matter. The scope and the reach of God's creation, it just blows your mind. And as mind-numbing as this is, there are aspects of God's creation that are yet unknown to humans. When, when uh, God creates, understand that there are things that can be obs observed only by him. <laughs> Which tells me that when God creates, in part he does so for his own joy and his own experience. It's kind of like creating these works of art that only you know exist and that can only be seen by you. And therefore they can only be enjoyed by you because other creatures just can't even begin to understand them, and yet they exist. So the author takes us from the heavens to the earth, and the Hebrew word for earth means land. Now this is getting more within the human realm, the human perspective of what is observable. Verse one is, is a general broad statement that actually sets up what's said next in verse two, which describes sort of this pre-creation state. You can, you can think of God as having all the raw materials here. It says the earth was, was without form and void. This is where the language, the Hebrew language gets so beautiful. It's, it's almost like as the author is writing this, well he does, he breaks out into poetry because this phrase actually rhymes. It's tohu bobohu. So when God begins to create, it's almost poetry. And, and so the earth was tohu 
babohu, unformed, but with a lot of potential. It's like the lump of clay is there on the wheel, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Ancient people used this kind of language to describe the, the scariest place on earth, and for them it was the abyss, the deep waters. The waters that were so deep that light could not penetrate. So ancient seafarers, they didn't obviously have the navigational skills that we have today, and so back in the day they would stay as close to land as possible because if you got too far away and out of the sight of land, well, that's where the sea got really deep to where it was the abyss and it was dark and it was, it was chaotic and it was terrifying and, and there was no order and, and there was no purpose. So this is all language that describes sort of this pre-creation state. Then God begins to bring order out of this chaos and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word for spirit here can also be translated as breath. Now, let me pause here and say this. There are many uh, good and logical explanations for the existence of God. Um, a lot of philosophical explanations. But what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't appeal to any of those. Instead, the Bible tells us we can know God exists through creation. As I said earlier, we look at order, complexity, design, purpose, all of that implies an intelligent designer. Uh, nature, the scriptures say, actually screams. It actually screams telling you about God's glory. And glory is that which you manifest about yourself. So this, that's why the psalmist writes this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare, or literally, the heavens are screaming. And they're declaring the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's this sense that day and night creation is communicating. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. All of creation is speaking of God's work. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them... He has set a tent for the sun. And he, he goes on here, but let me just stop and say that now there's this language that begins to develop that describes the bigness of God. Uh, the sun is, is in a tent. God puts the sun in a tent. El elsewhere, the earth is described as God's footstool. This is all language telling you just how big God is. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen. How so? Well, we can understand things about God, attributes about God, by the things that are made. That's creation. Then he mentions two specific things we can learn about God that creation reveals. Number one, that God has eternal power. And number two, he mentions this word, Godhead. And so because nature reveals these two things about God, they, those who deny God, are actually without excuse. Two things revealed about God through nature. Number one, he has this eternal power. So uh, I'm kind of like a unicorn in that I'm one of the very few natives in Arizona. Anybody else a native? Nice. Few of us. 
the vast majority of you all are somewhere else. Hey, I'm a native. And I mentioned this before, but one of the things I love about growing up in Arizona, I absolutely, I mean, I just totally nerd out over it. I love a good monsoon storm. Ever since I was a little kid. Ask my wife and kids, I'm a freak about it. Like when those storm clouds begin to develop, and you know how it works, they just kind of begin to roll over the mountains. The Bible says, like clouds without rain, you, you, you can get a little discouraged. But when those clouds start to build up, and you can even sense it, you know, it's like they get to be the, the right color. You get, they start to turn dark, and then all of a sudden, you see these little flashes of lightning. And it's really beautiful because a lot of times it's from cloud to cloud, not just from the cloud to the ground. And then what happens is the winds start to blow. And right about this time, when I think it's going to be a, a really good one, I'll, I'll grab a lawn chair and I'll set it up in the backyard, right in the middle of the backyard. See, I don't live up here. I live a little bit down south where I'm allowed to grow grass in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll put the lawn chair out there. It's plastic. Put the lawn chair out there. And I'll just wait. And those clouds roll in. And I have two massive eucalyptus trees in my backyard. And those things, I mean, you can't get your hands on them. They are rock solid until those monsoon winds blow. And then all of a sudden, those massive trees start. And it takes all of those leaves, practically all of those leaves, off of my tree, puts them in my neighbor's yard. <laughs> yeah, right into his pool. And, and I'll just be sitting out there with the lawn chair. And then what happens is, the air turns. You start to smell it. And then the rain hits. And there's nothing like, for those of you watching online, you don't know what it's like to be in a monsoon storm in the desert. There is a sweetness to the smell of rain hitting the desert. It's awesome. Someone came up to me after the first service and said, you know, there's actually a name for that. And I'll just be sitting out there, and, and I don't care. I'll just be soaking wet. Just, just rain will be blowing sideways and you talk about the power of one of those storms creation reveals the power of God you ever been on the ocean when it starts to get really rough you're, you're like nothing out there just the power in God's creation the psalmist says when God wants to flex his power take a look at the awesome power of nature. And then he mentions that the other thing that can be seen about God is the Godhead. What does that mean? Well, that speaks to the divinity of God. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the word Trinity, but the concept is all over. It's actually all throughout Genesis chapter 1. This is a nod to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It tells you that nature tells us that God is actually divine, meaning that he is good. Not only is God the author of and creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. And in that sense, he has a divine nature. He gives you the very air that you breathe. There is no way to put God under a microscope and discover every little thing about him, but creation certainly draws back the lens and gives us incredible insight into his purposeful intelligence and I believe that the idea that we can see purposeful intelligence in all of creation is an idea that for me personally 
the answers provided for my atheist or agnostic friends are totally unsatisfactory. Um, the students in one of Einstein's classes decided that after a lengthy discussion in class that uh, there was no God. And so Einstein asked them the question, well, tell me this, cumulatively now, as a whole, how much of all the knowledge that there is to be had, how much of all knowledge there is to be had, how much do you think, as a class, you collectively know? Like, what percentage? So the class discussed it, and they came back with a number, 5%. They said, we think collectively we know about 5% of all the knowledge that is to be had. And I think that's pretty generous, but uh, Einstein said, okay, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? And see, this is why for me it's, it's, very, it's, it's very difficult for me to believe, and I say this with absolutely no disrespect, and I've had this conversation with my friends. No disrespect, and I'm not saying this in a condescending or demeaning way. It's very hard for me to believe that there is such a thing as an intellectual atheist for this reason. To say there is no God is to essentially, and here's the irony of it, it is to essentially make yourself out to be God. Because you would have to say, I know everything about everything. And based on my, my limitless knowledge, I have deduced that there is no God. To say there is no God dogmatically, definitively, is to make yourself God. So at best, you can be agnostic, which is to say, I just don't know. Uh, David Gudzik says it like this. If everything around us, including ourselves, is the result of random, meaningless occurrences apart from the work of a creating God, then it says something about who I am and where I and the whole universe are going. Then the only dignity or honor we bestow upon men is pure sentimentality, because I don't have any more significance than an amoeba, then there is no greater law in the universe than survival of the fittest. This is why, you know, in my experience, there are very, very intelligent people that fall into the delusion that chance and time are agents of change. If you flip a coin, chances are it's going to land heads 50% of the time. But time and chance are not agents of change. One very outspoken American atheist calls human existence randomness. This is a totally unsatisfactory way of explaining all that we observe in nature, not just the complexity and order, but the purposefulness of it. I mean, just what you see in a, in a DNA strand alone, it is like a, an absolute work of art. Some 100 years ago, there was a German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer. And he had this unusual habit of dressing like a vagrant. And one day he was sitting on a park bench and he caught the attention of a police officer and the police officer walked up to him and said, who are you? Who are you? And Schopenhauer now famously replied, I wish to God that I knew. I'll tell you, 
if there was ever a question that's being asked by our culture now, especially from the younger generation, the question is, who am I? Quite frankly, sometimes it's, what? What am I? The Bible tells us that you cannot answer that question apart from knowing God. And Genesis is the perfect place to begin. Uh, there's a book titled Darwin's Black Box. As we work our way through the book of Genesis, because there's so much that can be said here, I'm going to be giving you some of what I think are some of the best uh, resources if you want to explore them. There's a book by Michael Behe called Darwin's Black Box. I highly recommend it. I believe it is one of the larger nails in the coffin of Darwinian evolution simply because he introduces the concept of irreducible complexity and I think he very convincingly proves what kind of faith it takes to believe uh, in the theory. So here we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and, and there's this anticipation of something that's, that's going to happen that's remarkable. Uh, and this word for hovering is a really special one because it describes a mama bird just kind of hovering over her babies, right? And this is this care, there's this compassion. And then the, narrow, the narrative moves from a, a broad perspective to the details of creation days, starting with day one, verse three. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So it's cool because God creates by word alone. It, we'll see this next week. When God creates man, he does something really special because it's not just something that's spoken, God actually gets his hands dirty. I mentioned last week the name Adam, Adama means soil or dirt. So only humans are created in God's image, uh, and God actually reaches down into the soil and begins forming male and female. This has uh, a, a very specific uh, meaning when it comes to gender and sexuality. And we're gonna talk more about this next week. And now you, you all are very interested. Um, yeah. See, for us not to speak to these issues in a way that the Bible graciously speaks to these issues is to make people think the Bible has nothing to say about it. That is completely absurd. The Bible actually does speak to it. And it does so in the most incredible way. I'll just give you a little nod. Um, from the very beginning, you see these couplings in creation, okay? You see these things that are, are similar in some ways, but they're also different, and they complement each other perfectly. You see it from the very beginning of creation, darkness and light. Uh, the sea and the land. The heavens and the earth. Male and female. So rooted in God's creation order, is this understanding of what God's intention is for humanity. And it goes back to creation order. It goes back to nature. Whenever God creates, he does so with purpose and meaning. So more on that uh, next week. So what is this light? This is interesting because you read through the narrative, you realize that the sun doesn't appear for a few more days. So what, what is this light? Well, it's not the light of the sun. Question. All throughout the Bible, how is God described? God is described as what? Light. So I believe that this is God showing up and even his physical appearance casts this light. 
Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. All throughout the Bible, you read about light and darkness. It becomes very metaphorical, especially when Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. The world becomes a spiritually dark place. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So it seems from the beginning, perhaps you can even see God setting in motion the earth already spinning on its axis. So let's pause here for a second because some of you might be asking the question, well, give us the timeline here, right? Some people believe in, a, in an old earth. Some people believe in a young earth. And it really comes down to your interpretation of what these creation days look like. Some believe that they are a little literal 24-hour period. Others believe that, that the day represents an epoch or an age that could represent hundreds of millions of years. Uh, th there are brilliant minds on both sides of the equation. What I would say is that this is not an essential issue. So therefore, when we have these conversations, we can approach each other with charity. Uh, some make the, the, the case that whenever the Hebrew word yom is used in the context of the specific uh, Hebrew structure, it always refers to a 24-day period. Others believe that uh, as God creates, he does so on his own time and in his own way. God has his own creation days, and one day actually might differ from another in terms of God's creation day timing. That's kind of a little bit more where I lean. Uh, whatever the case, what we know is these are broad brushstrokes. They weren't meant to give us the details, but they are historical accounts. And the other thing that we can certainly see is that we have enough information to tell us that there are both forests and trees in this account. Um, day two, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So on day two, God creates the sky. This is the heavens where the birds are flying. You look look up and you see that it's uh, blue. Now at this time, to name something was to claim authority and ownership over it. That's why you see God creating and then you see God naming. He's exercising his authority and this is true when it comes to Adam naming Adam as well. Now, I wanna push the pause button here and I wanna mention the fact that there are many other ancient narratives that contain creation accounts. Many of those creation accounts actually contain a flood story. So one of the questions that's put to the scriptures, to the Bible, and to Christians is, what's the difference, right? There are many other ancient creation narratives. What sets this narrative apart? Great question. Super easy answer. The thing that sets the biblical creation story apart is that there is only one creator God. You read these other creation accounts, and you see the God of water, the God of land, the God of the sun, the God of fish. The God. This is why when God decides to flex his muscle in the face of the Egyptian pharaoh, he does so by owning the Egyptian gods. One of their most powerful gods was the sun god, Ra. And God says, your sun god isn't real. Your sun god doesn't exist. I am the only true creator God. And so watch this. The sky is darkened. God says, I just owned your God. Next, 
they had this god of amphibians, right? It was like had a, the head of a frog and the, and the body of a human. And so what does God do? Watch me own your frog god. Every single plague that is brought upon the Egyptians is a direct correlation to God just flexing and saying, I own it. I control it all. I am the one true creator God. That's why in Genesis chapter 1, you see the name of Elohim again and again and again. Make no mistake about it, okay? This creation account is extraordinarily unique. All other creation accounts have all these different gods doing and playing their part and doing some really weird stuff. You get into Greek gods and then they start messing with humans and cohabiting, half human, half God. Some really crazy stuff. Only in the biblical narrative do you have one God as creator supreme, doing it all, all right? So, so far things are really beginning to take shape. You have blue skies over sparkling seas. You have the earth that is now warmed by light. God's order of creation builds on itself. So you have all of these things in place uh, and it all invites more creation. Day three, God speaks twice and the first word is an ordering. He separates the dry land from the sea, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Again, you're gonna see the orderly pattern. He gathers up the sea, the seas so the land can appear. So now you've got sunlight, uh, you've got light for warmth. You have a separation between uh, the sea and the land. You have the skies above. What's next? Plant life. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a third day. I think seeds are amazing. You know, you look at a giant oak tree and where does that giant oak tree begin? This tiny little seed. Totally inconspicuous. See, I think there are so many things in creation that actually give a nod to who Jesus is and his coming, even in creation, because Jesus is born into obscurity. Right? Nobody knows about him. And then he ends up being the savior of the world. You have this tiny little acorn. It grows this massive tree. And so again, you see order and design in God's creation. A no mention of sea gods, earth gods, fertility gods, just the spoken word of Elohim. And in that sense, he dismisses all, all others. All right, first three days of creation are completed. We have almost everything needed for mobile life. A few more things. God said, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, the moon and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. All right, so you've got sun, moon, stars, plants. Fifth day, I'll summarize it. God creates fish and birds. And then, bam, day six. God's final day of creation. He creates the animals. And then he creates his crown jewel. In all of God's creation, there is a pinnacle. There is a crescendo creation. And you know what it is? It's you. It's you. 
of all God's creation, there's only one creature created in his image. And that's you. What does that even mean? Well, we're going to talk more about it in the weeks to come. But let me just ask you this. Do you think God has value? Immeasurable. That means you have value. Immeasurable. Do you think God has beauty? That means you have beauty. God have intelligence? God have creativity? Does God act with purpose? All these things are true of you. See, our society is quick to tear down. And it is, as such, human nature. Everybody looks down on somebody. And then you read the Genesis account and you realize that you were created in the image of God, therefore worthy of immeasurable honor, respect, and dignity. This is why, of all people, Christians, we don't look to economics, we don't look to skin color, we don't look to any external factor in determining someone's value. Because every human is created in the image of God. And as I will explain next week, those who have special needs reflect the glory of God in their own unique way. You know, you go to Finland, and it's interesting because you won't see hardly anyone with Down syndrome. You know why? Because those babies are terminated early. Every human life in its own way reflects the glory of God. Every, every human life. There's so much here that we can tease out in terms of application. You don't have to answer out loud because I know, I know, I know you'd answer in the affirmative, but have you ever had those moments where you, where you kind of question everything? <laughs> and, and, and you kind of stop and you think, um, is there really a God? Have you ever thought that? Here's your answer. Get out in nature. Take a drive outside the city where you can see the night sky. Go to the mountain preserve. Just go by yourself. Do you know how many times the scriptures say Jesus would go to a solitary place and pray? Why do you think he went to a solitary place? He's going out in nature. Why? Because when we're out in nature, we, just, we, are, we absorb the grandness of God. Our problem is we don't slow down and stop, even though it's all around us. That's why the author of Romans says, they are without excuse. It is a delusion. Many intelligent people have fallen into the delusion of believing that it's all random. And as a result, our world is filled with meaningless. We live in a postmodern age that's characterized by skepticism. And skepticism leads to hopelessness. We're living in a world where people are just, they're asking serious questions about their identity, not just who am I, but what am I? In the very opening lines of the Bible, you get your answer. You cannot understand why you're on this planet without understanding God. And this is the beauty of God's opening chapter. He says, when I reveal who I am, it's going to answer life's most pressing questions. And your desire for purpose and meaning to, and to understand who you are 
I've got it all answered. So over the next few weeks, my prayer is that we would become shaped by this ancient narrative in ways that we haven't before. God is a God of Genesis today. You know what I mean by that? If you, so look, if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, if you believe Genesis chapter one, you'll have no problem believing in the rest of the Bible. I was having this conversation with a young, one of our young adults, and he, he was like, you really believe, tell me that you believe in the story of Jonah, like this guy gets swallowed by a big fish, you know, you really believe that? And I said, well, here's, here's why I believe that, because I believe that creation reveals there is a creator God, and so for a man to get swallowed by a fish, that is actually a very small thing in comparison to God creating everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. Yeah, that's a small thing for me. And when you believe that the Bible is authoritative and you place yourself under its authority, your life is absolutely transformed. So uh, everything, as I've been saying, points forward to Jesus, beginning in the next uh, week, week, uh, two weeks, we're going to see that um, man makes a, a horrible mistake. But Genesis is about God's grace and mercy toward people who get themselves into all kinds of trouble. God brings a Genesis, a new beginning, a recreation into every human life through the ultimate fulfillment of the book of Genesis which, as we said last week, is actually found in the person of Jesus. So, Father, God, the prayer this morning is that you would continue to impress upon our hearts the truthfulness of your word. God, we are rendered without excuse. We pray for all of those who, by virtue of their own wayward actions, suppress that truth because they live unrighteous lives. And God, let me just say, as you know, I, I can relate to the, those people because for a long time, that was me. God, we pray the Apostle Prayer that the, the eyes of our hearts and the hearts of all men and women would become enlightened to Jesus Christ. Father, we're so thankful for the good words of Genesis and just how they bring such meaning and order and hope to the human existence. God, I pray that your spirit, the same spirit that was involved in the creation of all things would be speaking so loudly and so clearly to every heart in the room everyone listening online, all for your glory because we were created to manifest your glory. And as we conform our lives to the image of Jesus Christ, that glory is seen and made known and Jesus was made famous. Lord, that's always, always what we want. We pray it in his name and God's people said, amen.